Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. It is Romans time. How many of you have uh, dealt well with the tension of the last week? How many of you have spent time reading Romans or looking things up or reading what people have to say about anything? Anybody? It's like, no, we're just going to wait. We got somebody over here? Yeah? David Jones? Yeah, I bet. Um, so last night, I'm looking at my notes and I'm like, okay, all right. No baseball tomorrow. We're going to get, we got Romans 9. I've got the most notes I've ever had. It's going to be great. We're going to preach for two hours. Totally forgot we we're going to have the kids in the service, so... Uh, Buckle up, kids. It's going to be a long day. Uh, if you're new, if you're a guest, if you've not been here in a while, what we do here is we like to preach through books of the Bible of our set of time. And we are now in Romans chapter 9. We've been studying Romans since September. Romans is a difficult book written by an intellectual, a smart guy, smarter than all of us in the room put together. Uh, the Apostle Peter, who we talked about last week, was a blue-collar guy also wrote some of the New Testament, said, that guy, Paul, some things he writes are really hard to understand. And a lot of people would say that the section we're in now in Romans is among maybe the hardest thing that Paul ever wrote. So that's where we're at. That's where we're, uh, that's what we're studying. Uh, And before we get started today, I want to just kind of reset the table for us about where we're at in Romans altogether, because this is a book that would have been read start to finish in the church when it arrived. So this letter arrives at the church at Rome. They're going to read the whole thing together. And so we've been going at what I think is a pretty fast pace because a lot of the people that I read are like, well, I spent 15 years preaching through the book of Romans. And we've, I've got volumes of sermons, you know, you can read them all. And so we're going pretty fast, but we're going much slower than uh, the church at Rome, Right? They would have just gotten it and they would have got the whole thing all at once. And so Romans 9, the weight, the heaviness of Romans 9 would have come in the context of everything up until that point. And so I just want to sort of refresh our memory, or if you've not been here for the whole time, just sort of like, okay, cliff notes, get us up to speed. Where have we been in the book of Romans so far? Where does it start? Paul is going to explain the gospel to the church at Rome to say, hey, this is the gospel I preach and I want to bring it to you in Rome and I want you to send me on to places where nobody's ever heard this before. And so this is the gospel that I preach and I want you to see and understand, I I preach the gospel. In fact, I have some things to teach you about the gospel. Okay, the good news And so he starts by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Greek. And then where does he immediately go next? This is the part where you answer and help me out and at least make me feel like I'm not a horrible preacher and teacher who miserably failed. Where does he start? We're all rebels, right? He starts with the wrath of God, actually. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against the unrighteousness of men, which is all of us. 
right? So he actually starts with the bad news. The good news needs a context, and the context is the bad news. And the bad news is the wrath of God's been revealed against all of us because we are all of us, every single one of us, sinners. No one is righteous. We're rebels who rebel against God's word, against God's design, against God's commands. We're hypocrites who say we don't rebel while we rebel. And we're judgmental, self-righteous jerks who look down on other people while doing the same thing so that we condemn other people for doing. There's just no escape for any of us. And so he sews it all up and he says, there's nobody righteous, not even one. Nobody seeks after God. Nobody. Everyone's turned aside. Everyone's doing their own thing. Everyone's rejecting God and doing their own thing. That's the context. That's the bad news, right? And so God is justly angry. But the good news is what? God has made a way for us to be forgiven of our sins and to have a righteousness that's not our own. He sent Jesus to come and live a perfectly righteous life, to die and pay the penalty for our sins because what we have earned is death and judgment and hell. So Jesus, perfect, righteous, goes and dies on the cross, pays the penalty of our sins so that we can be forgiven and that we can have his righteousness attributed to us. We lay hold of that by works? No, we can't, we can't do enough good works to earn that, right? We lay hold of that by faith. And then God not only then frees us from the condemnation and guilt of sin, but then over the course of our lives, he frees us from the power of sin as we put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. So we get freed from the guilt and condemnation of sin. We get freed from the power of sin over the course of our lives. And one day, the day is coming that we are all looking forward to when we'll be freed from the presence of sin in our hearts, in our lives, and in the world because God's going to judge. And He's going to remove the unrighteous and the righteous by faith will inherit everything. And so if you are in Christ and you belong to Jesus, can anything separate you from the love of God? Nothing. Nothing can separate you. All of salvation is all of God. God's done it. God saved. All we contribute to our salvation is what? We need to be saved. That's it. And so God's done it all from first to last. We were going our own way. He sought us out. We were his enemies. We were rebels. He saved us. We were doing our own thing. Our hearts were cold and dead. He took out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. And because it's all of God, then we're secure because it's God who's done the work. And God promises to finish what he starts. Everything God starts, God finishes. And so nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And so then that brings us to Romans 9, which is this question where Paul's like, I, I am so heartbroken over my family, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who don't know Jesus. What about them? What about them? 
Because if, if it's God who saves, and everyone God designs to save, He saves, and God desires for people to be saved, then what's stopping God from saving everybody? What, and, and what about Israel? What about God's chosen people? What about that? Did, did God's word somehow fail? Did God come short? And that's what we studied last week, and I am a million miles off my notes. Give me half a second. Yeah, yeah, some of you literalists over there. Half a second. It's been many seconds. Okay. So... All of God's plans are eternal. All of God's plans are eternal. And so what that means is that before, before you were ever on the scene, before you were born, God knew you. He knew your sins. He knew your temptations. He knew your weaknesses. He knew the ways that you would hurt and harm other people and the ways that you would be hurt and harmed by other people. And if you believe in Jesus, if you love him, it's because... He loved you first, right? And so there's the problem. There's the problem. If God planned to save us, and he did, what then about everybody else? Did God's word fail? out of the mouths of babes? Of course not. What a silly question. Isn't that a silly question? It's a silly question. Did God's word fail? No. No. So what was the explanation he gave last week? The explanation he gave last week is, well, we have to understand that there's a distinction that God makes between physical children and spiritual children, right? So we went back to the Old Testament. We started with Abraham. We've spent a lot of time on Abraham in the book of Romans. Right? Abraham had two sons, and they are Ishmael and Isaac. One gets the promise and the other doesn't. Isaac gets the promise. Okay? Only one was a spiritual child, the child of promise. That was Isaac. Isaac himself had twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Only one was a spiritual child. Only one got the promise, and that was Jacob. Jacob was chosen by God. And that choosing was revealed to Isaac's wife, Rebekah, when she was told that Esau would serve Jacob, even though Esau is the older one. The older will serve the younger. Before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she was told the older will serve the younger. And that was not on the basis of anything foreseen in them. That wasn't like God looking down the tunnel of time and saying, I see that Jacob's going to have faith. I see that Esau's going to sell his birthright. And part of the reason we know that that's not what he's saying is, one, if he wanted to say that, that's what he could have said, right? Paul's not dumb. The Holy Spirit is not dumb. If he wants to say that, that's what he can say. But that's not what he said. What he said is that God chose Jacob in order that his purpose in election, which is his free choice, in order that that might stand. 
not because of works or any foreseen works, but because of faith, no, because of Him who calls, because of His own, God's own prerogative and choice, His own free will to choose which of the sons the promise would pass to. That's God making very clear what He means. He could have said, because God saw that Esau would sell his birthright, God saw that Jacob would have faith. That's not what he says. He says that God's purpose of election might stand, not on the basis of works, but because of him who calls. And then Paul goes to another place in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 1, where God's telling the nation of Israel how much he loves them. And God says through the prophet Malachi, Jacob I loved but he saw I hated, hated. Okay, now true and false, or true or false, some of us in this room were shocked, surprised when we read that. It's true, right? Some of you didn't know that was in your Bibles. It's hard. That's heavy. So that raises more questions, doesn't it? And the natural question that it raises is, well, that seems unfair. That seems unjust. Exactly right. Is it unfair or unjust of God to not choose everyone for salvation, to choose Isaac instead of Ishmael, to choose Jacob instead of Esau? And if that's the way that you feel, or if that's the question in your mind or heart, that means that you're following the argument rightly, because that's the question that Paul anticipates you having. That's where he goes next. Is there any injustice then with God? So just like the other question, did God's Word fail? Of course not, no. Is there injustice with God? No, no. The other day we were standing around the the table in our kitchen, or the counter, or whatever we call it, we call it a bar, island, island, thanks, yeah. And Ozzy said something like this, you know, if the world, no, if life was fair, do you remember what you said? What'd you say? He said, if life was fair, I'd be good at baseball. Now, okay, let's ignore the fact that Ozzy's seven and that he's actually pretty good at baseball, okay? What he meant was that he would be better than he already is if life was fair. Okay. Does Ozzy deserve to be better at baseball? Only if he works at it, right? In fact, Ozzy's got it pretty good. Isn't that true? How many feet you got? How many hands you got? How many eyes you got? Two of each. Can you hit a baseball? Can you throw a baseball? Can you catch one? You got it pretty good, right? You got it pretty good. A lot of kids might look at Ozzy and say, if life was fair, I'd be as good as Ozzy is at baseball. Or if life was fair, Ozzy wouldn't be as good as he is at baseball. We would all just be the same. It's called socialism. Welcome to America. <laughs> Little children have very strong 
views of what's fair and what's just, don't they? And is it all right? It's not. It's not because it doesn't line up with deserving, right? Dudley Dursley thinks it's unfair if he doesn't get one more present for his birthday this year than he got last year. That's just kids. That's just kids. Kids, if your brother or sister goes uh, with mom to the store to help buy groceries and you stay home playing video games and then your brother or sister comes home with some candy from the checkout line, what's, what, how do you feel about that? What would you say? You'd be mad? What would, you, what would be the words out of your mouth? Go ahead. Can I have some? Yeah. Same, same. Can I have some? You owe it to me to give me some of the candy because that's not fair. No fair. How's it not fair? Do you deserve the candy? Did you go to help mom at the store? No, you stayed home and played video games. From the time we're itty-bitty, each one of us have a very strong sense of what's fair, what's just, what's right. And it's usually tied up with our selfishness, isn't it? We want it all. We want it all. Or it's tied up with our lack of understanding. Otto and Moxie have a puppy. No fair. We need a puppy. Why can't we have a puppy? Did you know that Otto and Moxie have a puppy? Do you have a puppy? Is that fair? (laughs) Yeah, just put your head down. Good girl. (laughs) When it comes to God, what is fair? What's just for us? Hell. Hell is fair. Hell is just. And everything we receive that's not that is, guess what? Not fair. It's grace. That's what it is. In that sense, every one of us lives on grace every moment of every day, every second, every time we wake up, every breath we take, we take by grace. Remember that exercise we did a couple of weeks ago where I said, okay, what if I write you a check right now for a million dollars? Would you take it? But here's the catch. The catch is you've you've got until tomorrow. Tomorrow you don't wake up. Would you take the check for a million dollars? Anybody in this room? 10 million? 100 million? A a billion dollars, you're going to take that check. A trillion dollars, you're going to take the check. A bajillion, jillion, make up a number for me. Google, you didn't make that up, you just know that. Infinity, infinity dollars. Who's taking it? Anybody. Nobody's taking it. And what did you just do? What you just did by refusing that check is admit that every day is a priceless gift of infinite value to you, given to you by God that you don't deserve, that you have not earned. That's what everybody has just admitted. Every day of your life until now has been a gift of priceless value to you. 
But do you honor the giver the way he deserves to be honored? Do you give thanks in proportion to the value of the gift that you've been given? Are you grateful? So what's just or fair depends on what we're owed versus what we've earned. Right? So looking over the whole of Romans, what have we earned? What have we earned? The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. What we are owed is wrath. So that's the backdrop, okay? That's a big, long introduction. I told you everything, just take everything times two today, okay? Now we're ready for Romans 9. What shall we say then? This is Romans 9 beginning in verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Okay, well, that sounds like the same problem, right? That sounds like he's just restating the issue. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Well, that sounds like the same problem. That sounds like the same problem, doesn't it? That doesn't sound like an answer. That sounds like he's just doubling down and saying, yep, that's the way it is. Okay, so here's the point. Your salvation is not something you earn, and it's not something you deserve. It's not something you contribute to. It's not something we receive by works, but we receive by faith. And that faith itself is not your own doing. It's God's gift. God takes dead people who deserve wrath and hell, and he makes them alive. And he gives them the gift of faith so that when he calls them, they come. Just like Lazarus from the tomb. God's the Savior. God does the saving. Our contribution is that we need to be saved. We're in trouble. We're God's enemies. Our hearts are stone. Our souls are dead. We just sang it. Nothing in my hand I bring. Nothing. We bring nothing to God. Salvation is a free gift so that no one would boast. Now, I keep referencing a passage in Ephesians, and I'm just going to put it up, okay? And we're going to read it because it's clarifying. And I want you to see, I'm not just making up words when I say, you were dead in your sins, but now you're alive, okay? Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Nice try. But that's not how we were by nature. We become children of God supernaturally. Okay? 
We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, all of us. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. The free gift of God, right? The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is... Okay. Okay. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. Not by faith, but through it. By grace, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Whose workmanship are we? Are we our own workmanship? No. Did we make ourselves alive? No. Did we give ourselves the gift of faith? No. Because it's all by grace. It's all by grace. You're not saved by your works. You're saved. You're not saved by your faith as if your faith is a work that earns you anything. You receive your salvation through faith, and it's not even your own doing. It's the gift of God. God did it all. So go back to Romans, and let's go back to the Old Testament, like Paul does here, Moses and Pharaoh. Okay, he's already gone back to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now he's going to Moses and Pharaoh. What's going on with Moses and Pharaoh? The Exodus is one of the central conflicts of the Old Testament, right? It is the big picture of salvation. Okay, so you've got Moses and Pharaoh, you've got God and the serpent king of Egypt. All of the imagery is there on purpose, written into history, because God's telling a story through history, and it's a typological story. And so it's no coincidence that Pharaoh is a serpent king, that his headdress is made to look like a cobra, that his crown has a snake coming out the top of it, and that his people were enslaved by the snake king, held in bondage under the snake king. That's not a coincidence. This is God's design for history to teach us about what Jesus is coming to do. Okay? So they're slaves. And Moses comes to Pharaoh and says what? Let my people go. Thus says God, the Lord, let my people go. And he comes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, no. I like having slaves. And so Moses says, well, God's going to visit you with a plague. Pharaoh says, bring it. And so God does. And then eventually Pharaoh says, enough, 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 enough. God lifts the plague. And Pharaoh says, ah, just kidding. And so it happens again. Ten times. Ten times. Until you hit the final plague, which is the death of the firstborn sons. And finally, Pharaoh lets them go. And then Pharaoh's heart's hardened again. And he chases after them. 
and he follows them uh, uh, into the desert. All God's people are baptized in the Red Sea as they pass through on dry land, so they leave the kids behind because they're not old enough to be baptized in the Red Sea. Wait a minute, how does that work? I'm not the one who said it was baptism. Paul does. It's in Corinthians. Look it up yourself. Okay. All right. Here's my shot. They all cross the Red Sea together, right? And Pharaoh pursues. And he's swallowed up in judgment. The horse and his rider are cast into the bottom of the sea. Okay? That's what we know or that's what we think of, right? We, we remember the plagues, maybe some of the kids. I'm pretty sure Otto can tell us the plagues in order because he loves that story. He's not here today. I was going to have him if he was. But it's a cool story, right? It's a big story. It's historical. There's a satanic, demonic, false God. There's the true God. And so Moses says, thus says God, the Lord of hosts, thus says Yahweh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, I don't know you and I don't know your God and I'm not doing anything. God's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to redeem his people. Egypt is the empire. It is the great, it is the, it is the world empire at the time. The watching world is going to see Egypt get laid low by God. So here's the question. What about this hard heart of Pharaoh's? Where did that come from? I threw some of the verses, not even quite half of them, into the slides. We'll just go and read them, okay? This isn't quite half. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, this is Exodus 4, see, what you do before Pharaoh, or see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. God's going to harden his heart. Exodus 7.3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. 7.13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. 7.14, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. Then verse 22, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. But when Pharaoh saw that there was, this is chapter 8 now, when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart. Now who's hardening his heart there? Pharaoh. And would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 19, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Chapter 9, Pharaoh sent, behold, no one of the livestock of not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Verses 34 and 35. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Okay, we don't need any more examples you see what's going on. The Lord hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. His heart was hardened. 
Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? God. Who is responsible for Pharaoh's hard heart? Pharaoh. Whose plan and purpose was it from the beginning? It was God's. So why was Pharaoh's heart hardened? Pharaoh's heart was hardened because Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. And because God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Romans 9, quoting Exodus 9, which we just read from, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So did God harden Pharaoh's heart? He did. Because God wanted to show the world his power over the serpent. So here's a question about Pharaoh. Is God unjust with Pharaoh? Is God unfair with Pharaoh? Pharaoh had enslaved God's people. God sent Pharaoh a prophet and said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, nope, don't know you, don't know your God, don't know this God you're talking about. God says, if you don't, I'm going to send a plague. Pharaoh says, okay. And then the plague hits and Pharaoh gets crushed. And Pharaoh says, enough. And so God relents in his kindness and his mercy. And then Pharaoh says, yeah, never mind. And God does it ten times. Ten times. What's the story? What does Pharaoh deserve? Justice. That's what he deserves. That's what he's earned. Instead, what Pharaoh gets is ten separate warnings. Ten separate opportunities. And he hardens his heart. And then comes judgment. Pharaoh gets patience and mercy. And finally, after ten warnings, judgment. So what does Pharaoh have to complain about? Nothing. Nothing. And God says, this was always my plan. I raised Pharaoh up for this very purpose, to show my power. Okay. So do you have a problem with that? How did God treat Pharaoh? Better than he deserved. Better than he deserved. Pharaoh was warned. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Sometimes God's judgments are that he hardens our hearts, that he calluses them. The same kindness that leads some of us to repentance leads others to more intense judgment. So remember back to Romans chapter 1. We'll read it again. Romans 1, 21 to 32. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, 
Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God gave them more of what they wanted. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Some people say America is headed for judgment. Guess what? The Bible says judgment's already here. It's already come. God has actively given us over to our desires. When you see escalating wickedness, that is in itself a judgment of God. And we won't like it where it's headed. God actively gave Pharaoh over to the desires of his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's all the same thing. Now put yourself in Pharaoh's shoes. You've actually, we've actually all of us been there before. All of us. What happens when something bad happens and you're under pressure? You make a promise. If you will just get me out of this jam, out of this corner I'm in, out of this pressure I'm under, God, I will stop doing the thing that I already know I should not be doing. We bargain. We try to make a deal. We feel that pressure, that discipline, that judgment, that warning, and we say, okay. Our our mind makes a connection, and we say, okay, that thing I know I shouldn't be doing, I will stop if you just let up. And often, God will let up. And then what, what do we do? If we're intent on continuing to do the thing we know we shouldn't be doing, we'll say, whew, what a coincidence. Glad that's over with. We won't change anything. We won't change anything. We're all just little pharaohs. Earlier this week, I got uh, pulled over driving for the first time since 2015. Uh, I thought I was going to get a ticket. I knew I probably deserved it. We were going home from baseball. We were singing and talking in the car. It was late. Nobody had had dinner. It was like 8, 8.30. Um, and so we got pulled over, and uh, it turns out I knew the officer that pulled me over. He was my old middle school uh, gym teacher, actually. <laughs> And so uh, it was really sweet catching up with him. I was surprised that he was a Warwick County Sheriff's deputy now. He's retired. And, um, 
But here we were coming home from baseball and Abe was in the front seat and Ozzy was in the back seat. And uh, so we're having a nice chat and he's going to let me off the hook. And then his partner walks up and says, well, did you know that he's on a suspended license? And so he looks at me and he's like, did you know your license is suspended? I was like, I have no idea my license is suspended. He's like, well, there may have been an accident or something in the past where insurance didn't get fully reported. So here I am on the way home from baseball. I've got Abe in the front seat. I'm driving too fast down the road, right? And so I say, okay, listen, we're still going to let you off the hook. We like you. We're, we're friends. Go home. Get on my BMV. Look it up, okay? Get this all cleared up because another officer that pulls you over might have taken you to jail and impounded your car. So I go home and I look it all up and guess what the issue was? Insurance never was reported in the 10-day window on the accident that I had. You know, the one where I was driving with Abe in the front seat on the way to baseball. We flipped over into a ditch and walked away because I was going too fast. Okay. Have I been a better, more careful driver since then? I have. I have. I've done better. I have the little keychain to keep on my keys that you guys gave me. Drive safe, I love you. It's right there. But that night, on the way home from baseball, I was not being careful. I was speeding. I had my boys in the car. I had Abe in the front seat. I was pulled over by a friend. He reminded me of the accident under similar circumstances. That night, I got home and I pull up I finished doing all this stuff and I opened up Twitter and some random person in my Twitter feed has retweeted what? Video of an accident of a car driving recklessly and getting torn in half. That's scary. Probably a coincidence, no big deal. Nothing to see here, nothing to be worried about. I got off the hook. Didn't have to pay a ticket. My license isn't suspended anymore. Everything is great. Right? Is that how we read things like that when God is God? That's not how we read things like that. Not with any kind of faith. Not with any kind of awareness that God is God. We're tempted to read all kinds of things that way, but it's wrong. When we do that, that's us hardening our hearts against God's kindness and his warnings. We just become a bunch of little pharaohs. And what will God say when we reap what we've sown? He'll say, you were warned. You were warned. Okay, so I'm listening. Tighten back up my driving. Then very self-conscious about it all week since that happened. How about you? Are you listening? Do you have a tender conscience? Because God is kind and he is merciful and he is patient and God is also just. Did Pharaoh get what Pharaoh deserved? He did. Did God owe Pharaoh anything? He did not. He didn't know him grace. He didn't know him mercy. 
Pharaoh had every opportunity. Pharaoh did not take it. Pharaoh has no excuse. Will anyone face God's judgment and be able to look at God and say, I have an excuse? No. No. Will anybody be able to look at God and say God owed them something? No. 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 Each one of us has had every opportunity. And none of us are as patient in the face of evil as God himself is. How many chances when somebody takes your family, your people, and enslaves them, how many chances do you give them? Ten? Maybe one. Who's more patient and kind and gracious? It's God. It's God. So be careful as we study this passage that you're not passing judgment on God's justice or His mercy because we are the objects of His mercy and what do we deserve to be? The objects of His wrath. How did we come to be objects of His mercy? Paul tells us. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God in his wisdom, according to his own wise counsel, not because of anything you've done, not because of your will or your exertion or anything good or bad in you, but just because he's merciful, took pity on you, looked at you and said, I will have mercy on you. I'll have compassion on you. You were going your own way. You were hardening your heart. And God said, enough. I'm going to take out that hard heart. I'm going to give you a new heart because it pleases me to have mercy on you. That should amaze us and silence us and humble us and make us stop our mouths and say, amazing grace, amazing love. And it does do that. But then we stop and think about it. We think about the people we love and we say, wait a minute, that does not sound fair. If he has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills, then who can resist his will? How can it be fair that he still finds fault with Pharaoh? And if that's how you feel, you're still on the right track because that's what he expects you to think and to feel. Verse 19, you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Okay. Is that where you're at? It's not gotten any easier, has it? It just keeps getting harder, doesn't it? It's going to get harder. Because here's the answer. But who are you? Oh, man, to answer back to God. That's the answer. Be quiet. Just be quiet. Who are you? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter 
no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called. Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And they will be in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, There they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Okay. Where's your heart? His answer is just be quiet. Who are you? Do not sit in judgment on God. Don't do it. You are not the judge. God is the judge. You need to remember who you are. You are just a lump of clay and a sinful one at that. And God is the potter. And the potter has the right to do what he wants with the clay. We live in a world that feels very free to judge God. That feels very entitled. We judge God's law. We judge God's design. God makes us male and female. God was wrong. God made you a man or a woman. God was wrong. God made men and women different. God was wrong. God says... Sex is good, but it's for marriage between one man and one woman. Don't fornicate. God's wrong. We as a culture sit in constant judgment of God. And that trickles down to each and every one of us where we're entitled little brats who want to say that's not fair. That's not fair. We, each and every one of us, feel very free to judge God, often without realizing that's what we're doing. So we come against hard things in Scripture, and we, our first response is, well, my God would never. And what we mean is, I would never, because I am my own God. And I fashion a God in my image. That's what we mean. I am not willing to conform my heart to God's Word, to the God as He reveals Himself in Scripture to be. And we proclaim our own pride, our own judgment of God. And that's a scary place to be because we are not God. He is God. And all of these places in Romans 9 are places that if you let it do its work, it'll expose how you want to play God, how you want to sit in judgment on God. And you need to ask the question, are you willing to just sit down and be humble? And put your hand over your mouth and be quiet. And say, God is God and his ways are not my ways. 
Because if not, if you're intent on sitting in judgment on him, one day his patience will come to an end and the warnings will stop and you'll end up like Pharaoh cast to the bottom of the sea under the judgment of God. And God will take that same judgmental eye you have focused on him and he'll turn it on you. He'll judge you by your own standard and you won't be able to stand. You won't have any answers and you won't have any excuses. You'll be just like Pharaoh. And if the best thing you've got is, why did you make me like this? It's not gonna fly. He's given you every opportunity. You cannot be the selfish, entitled brat stomping his foot screaming, that's not fair, when you've been given everything. Priceless days on priceless days on priceless days. And you're here now. You've not just been warned by things out there. You've been warned in words. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Here's what he's saying. God's the potter. Potter can do what the potter wants. What if the potter wants to show the full array of his skill, every facet of his craftsmanship? Let me ask you a question. If you go to the jeweler, you ask to see a diamond, how are they going to show it to you? Are they going to take it into a dark room? Are they going to sit it on the counter and then, oh, we need some white paper underneath it and let's sprinkle some glitter around it? Is that what they're going to do? That's not what they're going to do. They're going to be careful about two things. They make sure that the light shining on that diamond is brilliant. And then they make sure that the background behind it is the highest contrast possible. Black velvet. So that diamond pops. Diamonds never look so good as they do at the jewelry shop. That's on purpose. The glory of God is the diamond. And every facet of his character will be on full display against the velvety black backdrop of the evil and sin of this world. So that both his justice and his grace pop like a star in the night sky. If you're going to show grace and mercy, you have to show justice. If you're going to show love, you have to show wrath. And this is what he's saying. That was always the plan. That was always the plan. And all of these attributes of God, grace and mercy and love, and justice and wrath, they're all equally glorious and equally worthy of being put on full display because they're all part of the perfect character of God. And our place is not to sit and judge God for not saving everybody or to wonder why anybody goes to hell. It's to sit and wonder that he saves anybody, that we all don't end up in hell. To be amazed that we're among those who've been chosen and shown mercy to, if that is what we are. 
it's not about us. It's not about anything else. We had nothing good to offer him, only our bad, and yet here we are. And Paul goes on to say, and this is part of the beauty of it, God's saving people from every tongue and tribe and nation. God's free and generous with his mercy and his grace. This has never been just the story of Israel and the Jews. This is a story of humanity, how God's rescuing us all. This is the story of the children of Adam. Israel was just the chosen vessel through whom the redemption of the world would come. So he quotes Hosea who says, Those who are not my people I will call my people. Her who is not my beloved I will call beloved. In the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. This is what God does. He has mercy. We tend to start with everybody in heaven and try to figure out why people are going to hell. The Bible says, no, Adam chose hell for us. He had a choice. He chose death. God could have wiped out the human race then and there. Instead, we've been living from that day to this in a time of mercy and grace. And God is patiently enduring us and opening wide the gates of salvation so that whoever wills may enter in. Problem is that nobody wills. Problem is nobody wants it. Left to ourselves, just like Adam, we all choose sin. We don't go to hell because we weren't given a chance and all we needed was a chance. We all have many chances. We go to hell because of sin. And if we're saved, we're saved the way anybody has always ever been saved. Abraham and his family served other gods until God showed up and saved Abraham. Paul was on the road to Damascus to persecute the Christians until God showed up and saved him. You were running headlong into sin toward death and hell until God showed up and saved you in an act of mercy. Not because of anything good you had done. You were dead. He made you alive. You were lost. He found you. Even the faith you have was his free gift. So you have nothing to boast in except the free and amazing and inexplicable love and mercy of God. A God who loves sinners and who loves to save. Who loves to take the weak and the poor and the despised and the needy and the broken, the foolish things of this world, and to lift them up. To rescue, to heal, to redeem, to restore. God's not obligated to save anybody, and yet he does, because he's that good, because he's that gracious. So when Paul quotes Isaiah, and we'll, we'll close with this, and we'll pick it back up next week, because we're still not done with Romans 9. Remember, we're still asking the question about Israel and God's promises and how that all works. So he quotes Isaiah. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Okay, here's what he's coming back to. Look, it has never been about the physical children of Israel. It has always been about the spiritual children. Isaiah himself says, even though the number of the children be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. It's the way it's always been, okay? No matter how dark things were, there was always a remnant of spiritual children. Jeremiah and Elijah and the prophets, they often feel alone. 
And God always comes and says, no, I've preserved a remnant. There are people who haven't bowed the knee to Baal yet. And he's saying this, it's always been about the spiritual children, always, from the beginning. It was always about being born again. That's, why, that's what circumcision symbolizes and represents. That's why God says you must circumcise your hearts. That's why Jesus looks at Nicodemus the Pharisee and says, how are you a teacher in Israel and you don't understand that a man must be born again? It was always there. It was very clear. This has always been the way it works. And the same is true for you. And those of you who are growing up as children of the church, it will not be because you were born physically into believing homes to believing parents and into the church. That's great. It's wonderful. It's huge. It matters. God uses those things. But if you're saved, it will be because you're born again spiritually and you're spiritual children who believe. So Isaiah says this about Israel, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In other words, if God had not acted, if God had not intervened in his kindness and mercy, if he had not stepped forward and preserved a remnant, we'd have been toast. We'd have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened to them? They were obliterated, annihilated, wiped off the face of the earth. Why? For doing the same things that we as a nation right now seem to be intent on doing. Flipping the whole world upside down. Denying and rejecting everything God designed and made. So God made them a cautionary tale, a warning to the world. God sent angels down to investigate, disguised as men. And what happened? They said, let's rape the angels. God takes Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his family and says, I'm done, I'm burning it all, get out and go. And then he leveled Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, why did God save Lot? Somebody prayed for him. He was family to somebody in God's family. Abraham prayed for Lot. Abraham prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah because of Lot. And God, because he loves Abraham, because he loves his children, heard Abraham's prayer and he saved Lot and his family. And so if you are adopted into God's family, you are God's child. And God loves you and he listens to you and he cares. And there is nobody that he cannot save, which is why we pray, because he delights to hear the prayers of his children. And he delights to act. That's why Paul, the missionary, who's telling us all of these things, is the man who traveled the world planting churches and praying. But God leveled Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of the judgment to come. And we live in a nation that's like, yeah, I wonder how far we can push it. I wonder how serious of a warning that really was. We live in a nation that's like, I think Sodom was right. Let's try it. And judgment's coming. And judgment's here. And it's coming, coming over all the earth. Over everyone who sits in judgment of God. And just like Lot, some of us have been pulled from the fire. Because God is not just a God of justice, he's also a God of mercy. When judgment comes, no one will be able to look at God and say, that's not fair. He'll say, you chose this. I was patient. You were warned. 
But the good news is that if you're in Jesus, if you belong to Jesus, all of that judgment was poured out on Jesus on the cross. And there's grace and mercy and forgiveness for everyone who comes. Everyone who comes. Everyone who comes to him, he will save. He will not cast out. Everyone who wills may enter in. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So come, call on his name. His name is Jesus. And he's full of grace and mercy and compassion for everyone who comes. Have faith for that for yourself and have faith for that for your neighbors and have faith for that for your family. And go and pray and invite others to come into your Father's kingdom because he is gracious and good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and your kindness to us and for your mercy that we do not deserve. I pray that you would humble our hearts before you, that you would help us to trust you, that you would help us to keep our mouths shut where we ought to keep our mouths shut, and that you would fix our eyes on your grace and your mercy toward us in Christ. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.